All right, open your Bibles if you would. 1 Corinthians 14, for the sake of our visitors or our regulars who've been gone for a while, we are studying through, we're walking through Paul's letter uh, to the Corinthian church. And I do hope, especially if you've been here and you know that's what we're doing, that you've been reading along, it's really, really helpful uh, for your sake. If you've been reading along, you've been reading ahead and you have a clue what we're going to be talking about, especially this week, because we're talking about a couple of things in this 14th chapter that um, they're always good for an emotive response. People do get a little bit excited or emotive when we talk about these two things, and for good reason, because they impact how we do things. Um, we're going to be talking about the question of the manifestations of the Holy Spirit, specifically with regards to speaking in tongues, and then the question of women in ministry and women's role in public ministry. So those are the issues that are dealt with. And so without delay, let's get right to the text because we've got a lot to talk about. So 1 Corinthians 14, first verse, Paul says, Pursue love, yet earnestly desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you might prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God, and no one understands. But in his spirit he speaks mysteries. But one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but one who prophesies edifies the church. Now I wish you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy. And greater is one who prophesies than one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets so that the church may receive edifying. Father, we thank you for your word, Lord. And Father, I know this may be new for some people. This may seem odd or strange, Lord. For others, there's really strong feelings. And we want to be sure, Father, that in everything that we do this morning, we will be found faithful to your word. Amen. So this is our third Sunday talking about spiritual manifestations, right? If you weren't here a couple weeks back when we talked about chapter 12, that's what the topic is. It's literally spiritual stuff, nevmatika, spiritual stuff that we're talking about. Uh, back in chapter 12, Paul introduced the subject, and he did it in, in a general sense. It was kind of an umbrella coverage to develop an overall general principle, and he was very, very clear in that, and the principle was simply this, that whatever may happen relative to manifestations of the Holy Spirit's presence, in us individually and corporately, it should always be for the building up of the body. It should always be constructive toward the body of believers. In verse 7, again looking back at chapter 12 just for a quick review, in verse 7 he said, to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And he says manifestation because we know the Spirit of God dwells within us as believers and corporately and that manifestation, he said, is for the common good. Verse 13, he said, For by one Spirit we're all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, we're all made to drink of that one Spirit. Huge issue in Corinth was all the division, schisms in the church. Paul said that should not be there. And the manifestations of the gift, if anything, should be bringing people together. Um, after that, he went to an analogy of the human body, and he concluded that in verse 25, there should be no division in the body, but the members should have the same care one for another. And we didn't touch on it in chapter 12, but towards the end of that, it talks about what we call the ministry gifts. Apostles, evangelists, pastors, teachers, all for what purpose? Building up the body consistent message throughout that chapter, whatever happens, whatever the manifestation of the Spirit is, it should always be for the building up of the body of Christ. That's real straightforward. Okay. Then last week we saw chapter 13 where we talked about 
the centrality of love. And if you were here last week, you know that, that the point that was made was when Paul is talking about love all through that well-known 13th chapter, he's not just talking about human love that is somehow amped up enough that we get to the place we can do and be what God wants us to be doing and being, but it's the manifestation of His love. That is why that love chapter falls in between two chapters on the manifestations of the Spirit. Chapter 12, he talked about the manifestations of the Holy Spirit. Chapter 14, he's going to talk about manifestations of the Holy Spirit, and he drops that love chapter right in the middle. Why? Because that's also a manifestation of the Holy Spirit. It's God's love being manifested through us. I can't, in my own human compassion or caring or my own human you know, love for others, bring myself to place to accomplish what he calls me to do. I don't have that in me. I hope that doesn't disappoint you. Right? But I have the Spirit of God dwelling in me, and I can, through a manifestation of that love, accomplish the things he has for me to do. And that's that whole point of that, that 13th chapter. So now we come to the 14th chapter, right? And this is, as I suggested a couple of weeks back, kind of a practical, almost nuts and bolts guide to one particular manifestation. And of course, there's many. We talked about wisdom, we talked about knowledge, we talked about faith and healing. Other gifts, other manifestations, but this one Paul devotes extra attention to, and that is speaking in tongues, in an unknown tongue. And he does it by comparing it to prophecy. So we'll be talking about both of those, but his real focus is this speaking in an unknown tongue. So what we're going to talk about first is that we're going to talk about speaking in tongues, especially as compared to prophecy, and then we're going to address this other question in the chapter, that of women in ministry. So first, to the question of tongues. Okay, first off, what is it? Because not everybody, you know, is up, is into it, knows about it, is up to speed. It's really pretty simple. It's really, it's simply speaking in a language you don't know. You say that makes no sense. That's correct. Many times it makes no sense. The word that is used, it's not a fancy word. It's just the word glossa, which means the thing, right? But it also means a language. So if you were to ask a person speaking Greek, what languages do you speak? That'd be the word you'd use, right? It's just a normal word for language, right? And as a spiritual manifestation, the idea of someone, by the moving of the Holy Spirit within them, speaks a language they don't know. And let's face it, that's not a normal human experience, right? We don't normally do that. On the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit came on the church, and they all start speaking in a language they don't know. In that particular case, it was human language because there's a bunch of folks outside and they got, they're not sure about what's going on in this room. All these new Christians gathered together. Well, what did they hear? They heard the people in the room speaking a language the people in the room didn't understand, but the folks outside did. They were speaking languages they knew from all over the Roman Empire, testifying to the goodness of God. But it didn't stop there. Moving on through the book of Acts, uh, we get to the uh, chapter 10 and they're Peter is preaching to a mixed crowd of Jew and Gentiles, right? At that point, the church was just about exclusively Jewish. We would say Messianic Jews. They were raised as Jews, they lived as Jews, they've heard the message of Jesus, and now they're following Jesus. And as far as they were concerned, Gentiles becoming followers of Christ was nowhere on their radar. And it's kind of hard for us to wrap our head around that, but that was the setting. Well, Peter's preaching away to this group, and all of a sudden, the Gentiles who were listening start speaking in tongues. What do they conclude? Wow, 
God will save even Gentiles. There was no other way to convince the Jews and something like that happening. So again, that was an evidence of the Spirit of God's presence. Now, we're not told what they were saying in that instance, but they were speaking in a language they clearly did not know, did not understand. And then we come to Acts 19, which is a really unusual case. Again, you can read that on your own. I recommended that. That's where Paul finds a bunch of people in Ephesus who had been led to faith, but they had not had an adequate explanation of what faith was all about. And when Paul got done explaining to them what conversion and following Christ for all was all about, they began to speak in tongues. Which again, it was an evidence of what the Spirit of God was doing within them. So there are some patterns that develop through the book of Acts, right? Acts 2, this phenomenon accomplished a couple things. It fulfilled Joel's prophecy about it happening. That's what Peter talked about. But more importantly, it testified. It testified to unbelievers, right? In the case of Acts 10 and Acts 19, it confirmed what God had done in the lives of those people. It was a testimony, not to the people's spirituality, but of the presence of God in those people. When we come to the Corinthian situation, something had changed. That manifestation had developed into something more. And by, by every study of the letter, it becomes pretty clear that what had happened was speaking in unknown tongues was becoming normative in the gathered body. People were standing up in the church and speaking in unknown tongues. Right? And Paul said that's, that's problematic because it doesn't, do any, it doesn't serve any of the purposes that we had previously seen in the book of Acts being served. In fact, he says it just does the opposite. It causes confusion. He says in verse 2, you're speaking to God, but that's it. All right? People evidently speaking in tongues in the church during public worship, and that was causing a problem and adding to all the divisions that were there. So Paul addresses the matter. And let's just kind of go through this quickly through the chapter and note the key points that Paul makes. He says in the very first verse, he says, he begins by saying, pursue love, which heck, harkens back to what he has said in the previous chapter about this whole matter of love, not being human love, but being something to be sought after or pursued. That is the love of God being poured out in our hearts. He said he almost objectifies that as something we should be seeking as we should. And then he says, yet earnestly desire spiritual gifts, especially that you would prophesy. Okay. So let's define these two terms to start with. What is speaking in tongues? You already pretty well have described it. It's when the Spirit of God moving within somebody causes somebody to speak in a language they don't know. It could be a human language, as it was in Acts chapter 2. It could be an unknown language known but to God. Right? That's what speaking in tongues is. nothing more than that. A person, by the moving of the Spirit of God within them, saying things they don't understand. That's what speaking in tongues is, right? But what is prophecy? Now, we've talked about prophecy before, but let's make sure we're clear on it. It is really just speaking a message from God. It's just saying something from God. This morning, if I do my job competently, it qualifies as prophecy. A message from God. If I do my job well, if I do this correctly, it's prophetic. It doesn't have to be telling the future. We, we talked about this last couple of weeks. It can be simply explaining the presence, right? It's a clear, distinct, direct 
message from God. Now, a little bit of background on prophecy in order to understand what's happening here. Because, again, we have a church in Corinth with both Jew and Gentile, right? And they're all brand new converts to Christianity, right? Nobody, nobody got born into this church, this brand new church. And so they all bring their cultural background with them. The Jews bring the Jewish cultural background. The Gentiles bring the Gentile cultural background, which is how they see this issue. That's the only reason we talk about this is because we want to understand how they understand what Paul is saying, right? So for the Jew, that's pretty straightforward. You say prophecy to a Jew, where does their head go? Old Testament. Moses. Those guys, right? What did Moses do? He stood up and he told them the word of God. Did Moses ever say anything that wasn't crystal clear? What Moses said was crystal clear, including to Pharaoh. Pharaoh, if you don't let these people go, you're gonna, you know, a lot of people are going to die. It was straightforward. There was nothing mystic about what Moses said. It was clear. It was direct. That is the Jewish version of prophecy, which is, of course, spot on. The Greek version, it's really interesting. It's different, but it has some commonalities. That, that, that contribute to this, right? When the Greek thinks about prophecy, first century Greek, when they think about prophecy, where does their mind go? Their mind goes to the Oracle of Delphi. That's the most common example. And I'm only talking about this, again, to try to get a little bit into their heads, understand how they would have heard this, right? It was gross. It was gross, right? At Delphi, it's a beautiful place. got a gorgeous view of the Gulf of Corinth. But the, their Oracle was gross. There was a crevice in the ground from which some kind of toxic vapor came up. Right, And so, thinking as Greeks were thinking, this must be an important place because toxic vapors come out of the ground, right? So they would take a young girl and they would put her in a place where she would breathe in those toxic vapors and she would go into a convulsive state. If that didn't work, they would add other like bushes to it to ensure she went into a convulsive state. And in her convulsive, like I said, it's gross. In her convulsive state, she would make inarticulate sounds, right? And then the guys that ran the place would interpret those into intelligible speech, okay? Now, the girl was called Epithia, and we've talked about that a long time ago, why that word. But when she was doing her job, right, she was called Mantis. That's the word they used. She was Mantis, right? The priests or the guys that interpret it are called prophetia. They're the prophets. She's the mantis, which shares a really tight linguistic connection to the word mania, from which our English maniac comes from. So her behavior, due to the, whatever the junk she was breathing, was maniacal. Their behavior was clear, articulate speech. So they were associated with prophecy because it was thought in the Greek mind that they were the ones speaking for God. Now, what's the common ground with that, with Jewish thinking about prophecy? Clear, articulate speech from God, right? That's the common ground that Paul connects to. Again, I'm not at all suggesting there was any validity to what was going on there, but that was their understanding. That was their expectation in both cultures. The, the core of prophecy was clear, articulate speech, right? So, he says, anybody that speaks in a tongue, this is verse 2, does not speak to men but to God, for no one understands, for his spirit speaks mysteries. That's the mania. But one who prophesies speaks to men for what? Edification. There's that word again. Building up the body 
of believers. Verse 4, one who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. He who prophesies clear, articulate speech edifies the church, builds up the church, right? Verse 6, if I come to you speaking in tongues, what profit is there? What benefit is there? There's no benefit if I'm speaking to you in tongues. There's only benefit if it's clear, articulate speech. Verses 7 through 9, he makes a comparison to musical instruments. And he says in verse 8, for example, for if a bugle sounds an indistinct sound, who will prepare himself for battle? It's got to be clear. It's got to be intelligible, right? Down in verse 13, he raises the issue of interpretation, which is an accommodation. In this chapter, Paul says, look, if you guys, if you just got to speak in tongues in public worship, at least make sure there's somebody there who will interpret it. In 19, Paul says something really critical to our understanding. He said, I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all. Two things about that statement. Two questions. Why did he say it? Why would Paul say to a church full of people, or at least with some people, talking in tongues, even in public worship, why would he say, I want you guys to know, I talk in tongues more than you do. He wanted them to know he affirmed the value of it. It's a powerful thing in private prayer. Tongues is a powerful expression of the Spirit of God in private prayer. But the other question we have to ask is, why did he have to say it? Because they hadn't heard it. Because he hadn't been doing it in public. They assumed, because Paul's not out in the church doing the thing, he must not, well, he said, yeah, I do do it in private. And you need to know that, right? Then he says in verse 19, in the church, however, I desire to speak five words with my mind that I may instruct others, rather, rather instruct others, rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. The rest of the chapter is talking about just the practical way of accommodating the spiritual manifestations in the church. Paul wants things to be done orderly. The application is pretty simple for us. If you want something that will enrich your private prayer life, ask for it. Now, if you're not praying, if you're not, if you're not devoting time for prayer, this really doesn't have a lot of relevance for you, unfortunately. But if you spend time, as we all should, in prayer, ask, God, give me this. This is a spiritual gift, God. Your word talks about it. Ask him for it. And when a word comes out of your mouth that you don't understand, you got it. Right? Say, well, I don't understand. Correct. That's not the point. It's a communion between your spirit and his. Right? And it enriches one's pride. Now, if you don't, just keep asking. Right? Just keep asking. Keep pursuing. Even as he says, pursue love, pursue spiritual gifts, he says. Keep on asking, right? That's, that's the application. But in public worship, let's be intelligible, right? Again, 20 through 33 is all about an accommodation for those who want to speak in tongues. Uh, in public worship, Paul says, if you're going to do that, if you're going to do that, just make sure somebody is interpreting, Okay. Verse 33, he concludes, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. So his point is really clear. It's valuable in private prayer. If you want to ask God for it, it really doesn't belong in public worship. But if you absolutely have to do it in public worship, at least pray that somebody will interpret, just like any other translator would be necessary. You know, you go to a... We just came out of a missions conference, Pastor Joyce and I, and... and um, 
they're talking about stuff in foreign countries. You know, most foreign missionaries can speak a foreign language. If they stand up and speak in that foreign language, it sounds kind of cool, but it doesn't accomplish anything because you can't understand them, right? Until somebody translates. We used to try to do that with some of our mission services. You know, one of us would speak in Greek and the other one would translate. The only problem is there wasn't really enough skill there to do that well. And what got translated often had nothing to do with what was said, so we stopped doing it, yeah. So, but if there's going to be something that's not intelligible, make it intelligible, please, right? For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Now you can jump on down to verse 36, because the text does, and Paul just continues along the same lines. And he makes his final point through these verses. He says this in verse 36, Was it from you only that the word of God went forth? Did it only come to you? If anyone thinks he's a prophet or a spiritual, let him recognize all the things that I write to you are the Lord's commandment. If you don't recognize this, you're not recognized. Therefore, my brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy and do not forbid to speak in tongues, but let all things be done properly and in an orderly manner. It's really straightforward. Now, if you have questions about the whole matter of speaking, please talk to me afterwards. Talk to Pastor Joyce. We'd love to talk to you about it. But the point is this. It belongs in private prayer not in public worship. Because in public worship, it inevitably leads to divisions in the church, and the Corinthian church was plenteous evidence of that. But it's a powerful thing in private prayer. It's a powerful thing, and Paul testifies to that. But what of the other issue in the chapter? The issue of women speaking in church. Let's go back to verse 34. The text says, Let women keep silent in the churches. For they're not permitted to speak, but let them subject themselves. Just as the law also says. And if they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it's improper for a woman to speak in church. Now, who reads that and doesn't have some kind of an emotive response to it? Right? What in the world are we to make of this? Okay? Because the text reading is pretty straightforward. Okay? Well, there's actually four different approaches to this passage, right? Four different approaches. The first approach is that, well, okay, that's fine, but, you know, humanity has moved on, and this is culturally outdated, right? Too bad, right? Now, we, when we read Scripture, we have to take culture into consideration, because it happens in a culture, and it's understood in a culture, a culture that many times is drastically different than our own. So we have to understand the cultural element. But you can't just take a passage and say, oh, well, it's culturally outdated and throw it out. Where does that lead? No, that doesn't work. That's simply not valid. The second way it's accepted or dealt with is, is kind of the opposite extreme. It's like, well, sorry, ladies, but there it is. Deal with it. That's how it's dealt with a lot. I mean, after all, the text says what it says, and we have to follow the text, right? Um, I, I, don't, I don't follow that school of thinking. And it's not because I don't like it. And it's not because I just throw it out because it's not culturally, you know, up to speed. I don't like it because it's not biblical. And I'll explain what I mean by that, right? See, the problem is there are biblical texts right in this letter about women speaking in church. We just saw back in chapter 11, Paul talked about the fact that culturally it is necessary for a woman in the first century, if she's going to speak in church, to cover her head. That was a cultural norm. Okay, 
the very fact that he's saying in order for a woman to speak in church, she should cover her head, suggests that it's okay for her to speak in church. So you see, you have a conflict there within the text if you're taking this in a simple, absolute sense that women shouldn't speak in church. You've got a real problem. So that's why I say to take this text as ruling out women speaking in church or teaching in church, that's not biblical because it contradicts the text, right? The third way to put it, which is the way I have traditionally dealt with it, I know I've talked with some of you about this, is to deal with it on the basis of its translation and interpretation. For example, some of you have heard me say this. In that very first reference in verse 34, where it says, let the women keep silent in the church, that little word, the, is hugely important in Greek, and it always carries specificity, and it makes it very clear if you accept this passage, that Paul has a specific group of women in mind, which follows the rest of the Corinthian letter. You had lots of divisions in the church, you had lots of problematic groups of people, and one of them was a group of women, not all the women, but some that had, probably in the articulation of spiritual speech, gotten out of line. And Paul is saying that group needs to just chill, right? Within that, that same vein, it's often dealt with in terms of the situational dynamic. Because the early church was physically constructed like a synagogue. Men over here, women over here. Because in the first century, most women were not well educated. It was inevitable that if somebody got up and started teaching, they were going to have questions and some were yelling across the room. Hey, you know, honey, what did he mean? Right? Which is problematic. Only one problem with that. We don't actually know that's what was going on. It's inferred, but it's not clear. So there are those issues of interpretation and, and that we need to take into consideration. But then there's this, which is really what I have to come down to as I look at this verse. And um, if you're not going to listen to me really carefully right now, don't listen to me. Because you'll misunderstand me. I'm serious. If you're not going to listen carefully, don't listen at all. Because you'll misunderstand me. And I never want to say anything that causes anyone to lose any confidence in the inspiration or the authority or the accuracy of Scripture. Because I affirm all three of them. I affirm the inspiration of Scripture. Scripture demands it. Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3.16, All Scripture is inspired by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. It is God-breathed. That's what that word means. That does not mean that God grabbed the hand of John when John was writing his gospel. No, that means that God spoke to John's spirit, John's humanity coming through as he writes his gospel, and it is clearly written by somebody different than the other three. And when Paul is writing these letters, God is breathing through him. doesn't mean God's grabbing his hand and going, no, it means God is speaking to Paul's inner man, as it's filtered through Paul's own personality, it hits the page, and we can say that's inspired by God. Beyond our understanding, but affirmed by Scripture. So, we affirm the inspiration of Scripture. We affirm the authority of Scripture. First Thessalonians 2.13, Paul says, For this reason we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs it's work in you who believe. It's God's word. It is to believe. It is to be trusted. It is to be obeyed. It's authoritative. 
and we believe it's accurate, both in its transmission from God to the original author and in its transmission from the authors to us. But that's where we have to talk about it. Because in the transmission of Scripture, Old Testament and New, from the original documents all written 2,000 years ago or older, no magic was performed. God did not magically take the New Testament from 2,000 years ago and bring it to us today. You know how the New Testament got to us? A lot of really hard work. A lot of really hard work. Meticulously copying by hand from page to page. Devout, inspired, devoted scholars copying page after page after page, and they still made mistakes. That's history, folks. That's not discounting scripture. That's not speaking against the inspiration or the accuracy or the that's history. Mistakes got. Is there any one of us that think we could copy several hundred pages and not make a mistake? I don't think so. So we have to discuss the issue of manuscript accuracy because that's what we have. We have copies of manuscripts and copies of copies, and then we end up with a translation, right? Nothing magical. But where Scripture stands out in compared with every other document of history, you can name any other document you want, where Scripture totally tans apart. First of all, the number of documents. There are literally thousands of ancient manuscripts from which our Bibles are derived. The quality of those documents, and when I mean the quality, I don't mean like the physical quality so much, where there are no misspellings, no mistakes, and you suddenly come to something that's different, that's not a mistake. That's a quality document that raises a question of manuscript. You can't discard that document. It's a quality manuscript. In terms of the effort of preserving, in the intensity of review, all right, the oldest complete Bible we have where they had the full New Testament, or the oldest New Testament, rather. The oldest full New Testament is called the Codex Vaticanus. Now, it's not Catholic. It's just called that because they have it. It's in the Vatican. So they call it the Codex Vaticanus, right? It's written sometime, or it was copied sometime between 300 and 325. You know what's wild about it? There are notes in the margins that make it clear the copyist was aware of manuscript questions. Now, what does that tell us? That tells us from the very beginning, the church was aware of the issue and paid careful attention to it. There has never been a period in the history of the church where the copies were just made carelessly and passed on. Those copies are gone. They've been rejected. We have a 2,000-year history of meticulous evaluation of every manuscript, and that is why we know we have accurate Bibles, not because something magic happened, but because of 2,000 years of deliberate hard work, okay? You know, one of the greatest strengths of the church is the willingness to do this, the willingness of the church to say, hey, let's sit down and look at different manuscripts and try to figure out which one's the best one, and it's never been hidden. There has been debate. 
There's been evaluation. The vast majority of our manuscript issues that are out there are completely minor. Those that remain unresolved are matters of punctuation or spelling or two words getting switched, right? Kind of common mistakes you could make. And none affect major doctrine. Interestingly, there are no manuscript questions or issues relative to the resurrection. It's clear. Done deal. No manuscript issues relative to the virgin birth. It's clear it's done deal. Those aren't the kind of issues we're talking about. We're talking about mostly like you know, spelling mistakes, right? In later manuscripts, punctuation mistakes, but they didn't have punctuation in the earliest ones, so that didn't, wasn't a problem, right? There are four. I'm going to give you the list because you're all wondering, what verse is he talking about? There's four. There's four significant manuscript issues yet unresolved in the church. The first one. Mark, the long ending of Mark. If you read your Bibles, most of your Bibles will tell you that Mark, the best manuscript, ends at verse 8. And there's another like 11 verses that go on. Here's the point. There's absolutely nothing new and important there that isn't demonstrated someplace else except one issue. Handling snakes. I got good news for you. That's not in the original manuscript. We have no responsibility to poison, handle poisonous snakes or drink poison. Right? That's the only thing that's different in Mark's long ending. We can deal without that just fine, all right? At the other extreme is John chapter 7, verses 53 through John chapter 8, verses 11. This is the only one that really makes me sad. It's that incredible story of Jesus and the woman caught in adultery. The account of Jesus and the woman caught in adultery. The whole, he who was without sin, let him cast the first stone. That's not in any good manuscripts, right? That's a bummer. Because that's a really good illustration of Jesus' compassion, right? But that's all it is, is an illustration. No essential doctrine comes from that passage, right? I think most Bibles still include it because it's such a good illustration. But it's not in the best manuscripts, okay? There is one that affects doctrine way over in 1 John, uh, 1 John chapter 5. Uh, verse 8 says, There are three that bear witness on earth, the spirit, the water, and the blood. These three agree. That is in every good manuscript. But verse 7, it's, it's like a too-good-to-be-true verse. Verse 7 says, There are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. Oh, that is such a good, good verse for demonstrating the Trinity, which is why it got stuck in. See, that verse suddenly appears at a period of time when the church is really debating the Trinity, and all of a sudden manuscripts appear that have that verse. That's low. Whoever did that, I don't know how God dealt with them. That's what it was. It was a clearly a doctrinal insertion. But you know what? We can establish the Trinity a hundred other places, right? So these variations don't affect doctrine. But now we come to our chapter before us. Verses 34 and 35. That's the issue. There are three manuscript issues. And I'm sorry, I didn't get up this morning, I get to talk about manuscript issues. No, right? And that's probably not what you came here to hear, right? Oh, I am so excited. Pastor John, you know, talk about manuscript issues today. No, but they're real. There are three different manuscript variations to deal with these two verses. Just like it is in front of us, right? Verse 34, 35, bingo right there, right? But there are other excellent manuscripts, just as old, just as well regarded, that have it at the end of verse 40. So in your mind, take 33 and 34 and stick them down below verse 40. 
The interesting thing about that exercise, if you do that, take 34 and 35 out, put them at the end of the chapter, the chapter reads much better. There's a continuity of thought that reads through the chapter if you pull 34 and 35 out and put them at the bottom, right? So that's option number two, a manuscript that has them under verses 40. But then there's option number three, and that's the Codex Vaticanus that I refer to, oldest complete New Testament. The scribe that translated that, and they know it's the same guy because it's consistent handwriting throughout, throughout the entire New Testament, was very deliberate to copy everything exactly as he saw it, right? We know that he didn't exercise any editorial actions at all. They know this by comparing his work to other work, right? He copied everything exactly as he saw it, even if he had questions about it. But when he had a question about a manuscript, he put two dots in the margin. That was a recognized symbol at that time of a manuscript issue. And if he knew exactly where the manuscript variation started, he drew a line from the two dots into the text and he put an arrow right where the, and where do you suppose it went? Right between 33 and 34. And the construction, the theory that most scholars now accept is that what was inserted between 33 and 34 had started in the margin that someone had added to the margin 33 and 34, and the addition carried down to verse, where verse 40 is. And so some scribes said to themselves, in copying it, and by, by the way, is nothing unusual in antiquity for things to be added to the margin. You know, the day and age in which we live, boom, no, you couldn't do that, right? And you're copying stuff by hand. It's expensive and difficult. So you add stuff to the margin. Sometimes the original author would add stuff to the margin. So nothing unusual. But if the addition started at 34 and went to the end of the chapter, some scribes in inserting it would put it at 33, 34. Some would went where it ended and put it in there. All right? So you have a very serious question as to where it goes that cannot be resolved. There is not enough evidence to resolve it one way or the other. So what do we do with this? Well, I come back to a simple question. What does the rest of the New Testament tell me on this issue? And I have ample evidence from the rest of the New Testament that women should be speaking in church, and they should be teaching, and they should be preaching, and that is throughout the New Testament. Who preached the first message of Jesus' resurrection? And the men didn't believe her. Yeah. We read in the book of Acts about Priscilla and Aquila. It actually starts as Aquila and Priscilla, and as Acts goes on, it gets switched, and Aquila's name is at the beginning. And then something really wild happens. They meet a guy by the name of Apollos. We've talked about him before. This is Acts chapter 18, verse 26. And Apollos is out there preaching away, and he's winning people to the Lord. But his understanding isn't complete. There's some information he didn't have, right? And so uh, in Acts 18, 26, when Priscilla and Aquila, that's an example where her name came first, when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of salvation more accurately. They explained to him the way of salvation. It wasn't just the guy. It wasn't just a man-on-man -man thing. The man and his wife both sat Apollos down and straightened him out. Ample evidence, and I could give you plenty more examples in the New Testament of women teaching, 
preaching, prophesying, the whole load. Right? One by the name of Hunia, outstanding among the apostles in Romans. So I look and I see other New Testament evidence affirming women in ministry, and I have no problem, no problem whatsoever with women preaching, teaching, doing everything. Everything a man is supposed to do, and nothing a man is not supposed to do. What Paul rules out in the Corinthian passage is women acting in a fashion that is distracting or is damaging to the body, which guess what? Guys, us too, we have no business acting in a way that is damaging or distracting to the body. Same standards, the same standards, right? The larger question, though, the larger question, which is probably what's on everybody's mind, is what do I do with this? What do I do with this whole issue? Wouldn't it have been better if God had just gone, mm, you know, cut and pasted it to the 21st century, we wouldn't have to worry about all this stuff? I don't know. I know he didn't, though. And we have to deal with these issues. Here's the part that encourages me the most, though. And this is what I want to leave with you. This is what encourages me the most. It's not just that the church has shown this remarkable 2,000-year tradition of carefully analyzing all these manuscripts to give us the most accurate Bible we can, but it's because the church has been absolutely transparent in it from the beginning. This is the Bible I use in first-year Greek, right? Every first-year Greek student, I don't care what college you go to, I don't care what denomination it is, I don't care what flavor it is, this is the one you start with, right? This is not like upper-end academic stuff. This is first-year Greek. Alex, can you pull that picture up? Anybody, you can get this on Amazon for about 60 bucks. It's not cheap. Okay, That's the first page, or just a quick picture of it. You can obviously see there's two different types of font on the page, right? The top half of the page is the biblical text. The bottom half of the page is manuscript discussion. It's right there for every first-year Greek student to see. Most of our first-year Greek students, they have enough to do on the top of the page, right? We don't get into the bottom of the page to the second year. My point is simply this, though. It's right there for everybody to see. If there's a manuscript question, we can talk about it, right? Again, it's probably not what you wanted to come here this morning and hear, right? Oh, good. But it is important because it's reality. And why do I stress this? I stress this because we are coming into a, into a time when our faith is under attack like it has never been under attack before. And the expression and the right to express what we believe is under attack like it's never been attacked before. The church itself is under attack, and we cannot afford to simply stick our heads in the sand and hope it all gets better. It's not going to work. You think you have co-workers that aren't aware of the fact there are manuscript issues? In many cases, they're ahead of us, right? But how much better it is when your co-worker says, you know, the Bible's so full of errors, instead of retreating from the discussion, you can say, let's get a cup of coffee and talk about that. And you and I can intelligently discuss what errors you think are in the Bible. My bet is they're going to turn the deal down because they really don't know. But on the odd chance that they are aware of something, you're in a place to intelligently discuss it and testify to the accuracy of our scriptures. Peter put it this way. And he was writing about a church facing 
difficult times. He said, even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you're blessed. And do not fear their intimidation. Yes. And do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Yes, dear friend, I will sit with you and talk with you about any question you have about Scripture. And if you think it's full of errors, we can talk about that. And if you're open and honest, I will persuade you that it is fully accurate because it's fully inspired and it's fully authoritative and it speaks to us. Father, I thank you that even, even when we come to a passage, Father, that leaves us sometimes scratching our heads, wondering, God, it would have been so much better if you would straighten this out before we got it. But that's not how it works, Lord. And I don't, I don't begin to know why in your wisdom you left it. Maybe it was inevitable, Lord, I don't know, that we need to deal with the realities of questions about the Word of God. But Father, at the same time, Lord, keep us from falling in the mistake of thinking we should be reluctant to discuss questions about our Scriptures, Lord. We should be excited, Lord, especially, Father, when an unbeliever approaches us and has something to say about our, our, our Bible, Lord. Especially if it's an honest question, Father, we should be the first to jump at that opportunity and say, yeah, let's talk about what my Bible says. Father, I pray we'd be quick to do that. Father, I thank you for the gift of praying in a tongue, Father. And for those this morning who have questions about it or are concerns, Father, I pray uh, there would be that willingness to come and ask, Lord, or just better yet, just to seek your face on the subject. Ask you about it. Father, for um, those in this fellowship, especially, Father, um, women, especially younger women, Father, that feel a tug in their heart to take a lead in the body of Christ, there would be no reluctance, no fear, but to step forward and say, I'm ready to speak up for all of us, Lord, all of us. We'd be quick to be ready to give a defense for the hope that's in us. Help us, we pray to that end, in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord this morning.